You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And today I have the most interesting guest. Her name is Bonnie Compton. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner, but she is an end-of-life doula. I did not know this is a thing. And she reached out to me. I'm so thrilled to have her on. I think it's fascinating and something that we all, you know, we're all coming in the world, but we're all going back right back out. So everybody, um, I think we'll be able to really <laughs> glean some info from her today. I'm super excited to talk to her. Bonnie, thank you for being here. Oh, Claire, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Good. Okay. So, so tell us your background and how, and how you got here. Okay. So my background is I was a pediatric nurse and then a pediatric nurse practitioner. I was drawn to the emotional behavioral aspects of children and families mm-hmm. were drawn to me for that reason. So I went back and became a child and adolescent therapist. And um, now I am a parent coach. I'm only working with parents. I'm hoping to keep a lot of kids out of therapy that don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not against therapy. I am a therapist, right? Right. Um, I also volunteer at the Medical Uni- University of South Carolina on the pediatric palliative care team. And so a few years ago, I would sit there during rounds and I would hear about families that had gone to the maternal fetal clinic during pregnancy and found out that their baby had a condition that wasn't compatible with life and they may only live an hour or a week or whatever. And then I would also hear about children who were diagnosed with terminal illness. And I began to think, what happens to families when they leave the hospital? Mm. And the palliative care team is awesome and they have limited time, right? Right. So all of a sudden, one day, and I believe this was synchronicity, divine inspiration, whatever you want to call it, I heard about end-of-life doulas, and I Googled it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. So I, three years ago, I attended the Conscious Living and Dying, Conscious Dying Institute in um, Boulder, Colorado, and became an end-of-life doula, and they refer to us as sacred passage doula, and I'm also a Conscious Living and Dying coach, and then COVID hit. Um, but my backstory, if I can share my why of why I'm doing this is when I was 15, my 19 year old brother and my 44 year old father died suddenly nine months apart. Mm. Wow. And it was very traumatic, right. For the whole family. And I remember saying, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I didn't get a chance to say, I love you. And So I woke up at a pretty early age, how precious life is and that we are all going to die, right? We all have an expiration date, but how do we want to live our lives in the meantime? And I also believe that death is as sacred as birth is and birth. We plan for a lot and death. We often let happen and it becomes a medical event rather than a human event. Hmm. So that is my why. Um, and that's what you help kind of guide people 
through that that process because I, I think we all not all, probably not everybody but a lot of women particularly have heard of a doula and think of it in the birth setting right right but you don't I didn't even know that the, like you said an end of life doula I didn't know that existed so how how do you well, guide them through that process well I was going to say so a birth doula helps parents prepare for the birth of their child right before mm-hmm. during and after with the end-of-life doula, we do the same thing. Um, the individual, say, who has received a terminal illness uh-huh. um, and their family before, during, and after. I mean, I love to work with people early on, and this is part of my conscious living and dying coaching, is, hey, I don't care if you have an hour to live or 50 years to live. What do you want to sort through in your life so that you are so clear that you don't have regrets when you're done, when you die? And you plan how you want things to go as much as possible as you're able to. Okay. But you said when you started out, you, you were with women in the maternal, maternal fetal clinic and you were not with with them, but I know of stories through sitting in rounds. Mm -hmm. And so do you mainly work with the pediatric population or are you children and adults or how, how does that work? My, my passion is pediatrics. My, so I'm in my practice. Um, however, I will be seeing big people too, Mm -hmm. adults. Absolutely. Um, but I want to help parents, because that is traumatic grief that they are going through. Any parent that loses a child has been traumatized, right? Truly. And one of the best and last parenting gifts they can give their child is a good death and to be able to spend that sacred time with them and not be in a crisis mode when they're making decisions. So how do you get connected with families and and how is it difficult to bring people to the point where they can even discuss that because I, I think with an older person it's like you know you you know they're getting older or you maybe know that they've got this terminal illness but with a child it's just so hard to even imagine that they right, might die right. so you know we all are going to die um right. we don't really want what to think, but yes I know guess what so my husband who's a palliative care physician and for years and was a hospice physician has said he's going to make a t-shirt and I'm going to do this now and the t-shirt is going to say research shows that 10 out of 10 people will die mm, sure does right right yeah. and so but we it's like no we're going to put it off and even when an elderly person is sick, many family members are having a hard time, and of course they are letting go. And so they want everything done possible to the point where it may not be benefiting that person. Yeah. Or the flip side of that is someone has made their or hasn't made their wishes known. They've talked about it. Perhaps a spouse has talked, you know, husband's talked to his wife or whatever, but it was never in writing. Yeah. What they want at the end. And yeah. so many times at the bedside, adult children are there. And one of the providers asks, if your mother could speak, say the father has already died. If your mom could speak, what would her wishes be? And often they say, I don't know. We never talked about it. Right. And, you know, 80 to 90 percent of people say they don't want to die in the hospital and 80 to 90 percent die in the hospital. Gosh. Okay. But let me ask you that. I actually just had a conversation with a a friend from home recently whose uh, brother had passed away and the the family 
thought that he would want to die at home or that they wanted him to die at home. But that it brought up this really interesting discussion of, okay, if we take him home, we don't have the same resources. And yes, you can have hospice, but he was in pain and we can only do certain things. And they ended up at uh, like a hospice center, not not the mm-hmm. hospital per se. Um, mm-hmm. And they had a really good experience and they were really glad that, that, that it ended up that that's how that happened. Because then you don't have, you know, this, the person's been in the house and then can you go in that room ever again? And it's just right. so much more complicated mm-hmm than than we think so what is what does that look like for people who really think they don't want to die in the hospital and how does that happen if they don't want to die in the hospital is it just because nobody knew that or what is that like y'all let me tell you about my absolute favorite home store of all time celadon so they have everything from dinnerware to pillows furniture they even have jewelry and yes it's located in mount pleasant south carolina but their website has everything you could possibly need and they ship anywhere so celadon has like a laid back but curated vibe and no joke almost every piece of furniture in our home has come from celadon so if you're in charleston definitely stop by or visit them online at celadonathome.com and because they are awesome they gave me a 20 percent discount code so check them out and use code dabbleco20 for 20% off. That's celadonathome.com. Well, let's say they didn't make their wishes known. Let's go with that scenario. And then the medical team is doing everything possible, right, to keep them alive. Um, And or a family member, if the wishes aren't documented, Mm-hmm. in a legal document, a family member is like, no, I want everything done. Say a wife says that with her husband. Yeah. Um, and so, and then, you know, this, you're a nurse practitioner, I'm a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. You think, well, let's try one more thing. And then one more thing leads to another. Yeah. And then pretty soon they're on a ventilator. Yeah. And I'm not against medicine and right. medical technology at all. But when it gets to the point that it's clearly just keeping someone alive and there's no quality of life, um, it, that's why it is so important to name a healthcare agent, to have a durable medical power of attorney. So that is with adults. Now you ask about with children. And of course, I'm not going around talking to parents about, hey, your kids may die one day. I would never do that. Yeah. Um, But when people begin to find out, and my practice is a newer one, COVID kind of slowed things down, um, that I am available to support them when they do get the news that their child Mm -hmm. is going to die Um, or their child has died and they're now grieving or they're experiencing trauma, the intrusive thoughts and images from the hospitalization that, you know, I want to be able to support them in that also. So you said earlier, conscious living, but conscious dying. Can you talk about that? And what what does that mean? Sure, sure. So I'm a big believer in living life consciously and with intention. You know, we all get busy and you can just kind of get on the hamster wheel Mm -hmm. and just keep going. And then all of a sudden realize, oh my gosh, time has gone by. I don't know if you're aware of Bronnie Ware's book, um, Top Five Regrets of the Dying. No. She was, it's wonderful. I read it many years ago. She was taking care of people who were dying and she wrote this book based on their top five regrets. 
You know, they wish they hadn't worked so long. They wish they could be who they wanted to be, not who they were expected to be. They wish they could speak their truth, you know, those sort of things. So in conscious living and dying coaching, I help people. We look at five different domains, emotional, mental, physical, practical, and spiritual. And I help them to look at each area in their life and help them create a vision map where they want to be in those areas and where they are right now. And then they come up with action steps to help them get there. So say someone has not done any um, end of life documents at all, and they Mm -hmm. know it's important and they want to talk to their adult kids about it. Um, For them, where they are right now is I've done nothing. Where I want to be is have all of those documents completed and have a conversation with those that are, you know, my loved ones. Right. And so it's really just being like aware and involved of what the end of your life might look like? Yes. And and so for the practical, you know, and they can change it as time goes on. So someone may say, I want to die at home. And then they may change, no, I want to die in a hospice house or I want to die in the hospital. And then they can change it, but they already begin to have a plan so that they then, once they have their goals and their action steps, I mean, that's what moves us forward, right? Not just hoping we do it one day. Right. You know, and I had a colleague, or actually a friend, and I was coaching her through this. And she said, I know I haven't prepared anything, a document, and I don't want to burden my daughter with this. And I said, you're going to unburden her. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. When you have these conversations and you say, here are my wishes, and could you please honor them? It's the opposite. Uh, yeah, it's you're, you don't realize what a burden it is to, to children, however old the parent might be, if you have nothing spelled out. And just the emotional burden of them trying to figure out what you would want and honor your life and right. kind of all of that. It's very complicated emotionally. Right. And, and you look at Queen Elizabeth's death. I mean, she planned that years ago. It was, that is such a, a beautiful study of a conscious mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. right? Just ha- what she wanted, everything. And that way, when loved ones are in the, the grief and the shock of, you know, their loved one's death, they can pull out this document, say, okay, we're going to follow this as, as it, as a map. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of friends who, who have kids and haven't yet put together a will or changed their will or, or really spelled things out because it does, it feels very weird. It feels surreal. It can be very emotional, you know, to sit down and really spell all of this out, but you just kind of, you just kind of have to, um, I, I, I think because, I mean, my kids are too little now to even understand any of that. But let's say something tragically happened in a few years and they're in their teenage years or they're 19 or 20 and they're trying to navigate this while going through a trauma, you know, to have it written out and spelled out specifically. And like you said, it it might change. I mean, so we, my husband and I did this four or five years ago and there are things in there now, you know, would you ever accept a feeding tube or a ventilator that I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that could get, you know, 35 at the time we're doing this, like that could get me t- through a whatever car accident or something. But you might, when you're 
80, I don't know, you might say like, no, I actually don't, I don't want to do any of that. Like I just, you know, it could be, could change every five to 10 years. Who knows? Well, it could. And that's why it's important to update your will every five years for Mm -hmm. that reason. And also for your kids and other parents who are listening, when a parent dies, which is awful to even think about, and it does happen, what children want to know is the first thing they want to know is, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe? And so you don't need to talk to them about your will, you know, but that there is a plan who will take care of them so that loved ones, family members aren't trying to scramble and figure this out. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorn. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash u slash and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash you, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Well, I don't think people can envision that family would have a difficult time figuring it out after that, like, oh, they'll just, they'll figure it out. Or it might be so obvious to you. But it may not be obvious to, you know, both sets of grandparents. Maybe there's two sets of aunts and uncles. I mean, it it could be extremely complicated. And that gets fought in the courts. It does. It does. And so why have to have your family go through that and your children go through that? Right. When you have already made the decision and you have talked to the people that you want to raise your children and you never know, you might have had a conversation with one person and that they that may not be honored because it's not in writing. I mean, it's just, it, I can't even, I can't imagine. Things just get weird when people die. Things get real weird. For sure, for sure. And money gets weird when people die Ooh. and lots of fighting over that. So please, whoever is listening, go ahead and get these documents in order. You can always change them. But you can't go back after the fact. After no, You're dead. You're dead. You can't, dead. right? I'm wondering what your thoughts are, and you're, we're in, you're in South Carolina, so I don't think this is even an issue, but um, just because you do, you have so much um, experience with and involvement with the, you know, the intimacy of the death process, mm-hmm. um, I guess the best way to say it is physician assisted suicide, or mm-hmm. I, I know there are other kind of different terms Medical. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for terminal, you know, people with a terminal illness right. talking mm-hmm. about, you know, conscious dying and wanting, wanting to die on, on your own right. terms. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts about that? I am in favor of it. If a person mm-hmm. wants it, mm-hmm. it is completely their decision. Mm-hmm. It is um, not legal here in South Carolina. Right. You're in Nashville, right? I'm in Nashville, yeah. I'm sure it's not legal here either. Okay. It's Surely. becoming more and more legal. Um, yeah. I mean, in more and more states. Um, I am not one to talk anybody into it. Right. Um, but I think there are things worse than death. Yeah. There truly are. Suffering or? 
and suffering and you see how we treat animals and at some point they're euthanized if they are in such pain and I feel that we treat animals better than we do people. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I, I just don't I guess I guess there's just a fear around abuse of, of that. Of course. And of course. I, but I can't think of any other reason. I, I can't think of the negative side, you know? I mean. Well, it has to be. It is not something that is done easily, for sure. Yeah. You have to have, I think, two physicians sign off on it. I think you have to have a psychological, you know, screening, all sorts of things. It is not yeah. something that is quick. Yeah. Um, and many people who choose it and get the prescription, never use it. But really? Know, yes. But they know they have it available if and when they need it. That's so interesting. I n- I've had no idea just because they're, they're not, they can't quite, they're not quite ready, but they know that they might they be. know it's available. They know yeah. it's available when, um, and so, you know, the, the other piece and, and this is not, something in South Carolina either, but it is, um, it's known, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called VSED, it's all caps, Mm -hmm. it's voluntarily stop eating and drinking, and which people can choose to do, Mm -hmm. Um, and really the dying process is your body, if we allowed our bodies to die on their own as they were intended, it's really it reminds me, Claire, of going through labor and the birthing process. It's a different kind of labor. Mm-hmm. But the body knows what to do mm-hmm. and begins to shut down. Right. And, you know, loved ones often fear, well, they're hungry. We need to keep feeding them. No. Think mm-hmm. about it when you're sick. You're not hungry, right? Right. Well, they're thirsty. We need to give them an IV. No, because that fluid leaks out. Right. And they're not, the kidneys are no longer worth, you know, working. And so they ended up becoming really um, congested with all this fluid. Suctioning them doesn't help because it's still going to keep coming back. So traumatic too. It's very traumatic too. And so one of um, my missions as an end of life doula is to educate people about the dying process and what it looks like so that they are very aware. It's like, oh, this is normal. My loved one is not starving. Yeah. Or when my loved one is breathing this way, it's because the muscles begin to relax, the mouth yeah. open, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that they're not panicking. Say if they're at home and have hospice coming in, they're not panicking and calling 911. Yeah. Yeah. And then they get taken to the hospital. And then if you don't have it in writing that they're then DNR they're the or DNI and, oh. Yep then it, it becomes a, you know, a whole vicious cycle. There's a, um, since you're on Instagram a lot, I don't know if you've seen her, but I love hospice nurse Julie. Uh-uh. No, I'll have to go find her. Is doing a fabulous job. I mean, she has gone viral. Yeah. <laughs> and what she's doing is educating people about this is death. This is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it really is. It's interesting. So, when I was a nurse actually in the hospital, um, and you know, we, we certainly had uh, traumatic codes and, you know, where you're doing CPR and, and intubating and doing all that, that, in, that ends in death. And that is very traumatic. But the reality is that most of the people that died 
you know, in the hospital on the floor from, you know, let's say cancer or congestive heart failure or whatever it was that they came to us for to be in the hospital, it, it honestly is bizarrely peaceful. Um, it's very, it's like slow, almost like slow motion. And like you said, there's just really kind of fascinating stuff that happens with the skin and with the breathing and the way that the way that people just fade, they truly just fade into, you know, to me, heaven. Um, but it's really, it's really remarkable. And I think people imagine death always as this very traumatic, painful event. And like you said, with conscious, you know, if, if you're consciously thinking about it, it doesn't have to be that way. Right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, that is the time to surround your loved one and be there with them. Mm-hmm. But if you fear death, it's going to be hard for you to be there, right? Mm-hmm. So once you know what's going on, the signs and the symptoms, so to speak, of yeah. death, um, I co-created and um, co-teach a program at MUSC, and we're calling it Compassionate Companions, um, mm-hmm. for volunteers to sit vigil with those that don't have any family or friends to be with them at the yeah. end of life. And, um, or for families that need respite. And we always talk about this is, this is sacred time being with them. And I don't know, Claire, as a nurse, if you ever experienced any of your patients talking to loved ones, like in the corner of the room or reaching out or, you know, they often say, oh, they're delirious from the medicine. No. Um, Dr. Christopher Kerr, um, has written a book. He's a hospice physician up in Buffalo and he's written this book death is but a a dream. And he's done all of his research um, about people at the end of life and they are in contact with their ancestors or their pet or whatever, and um, really brings them peace. You know, if it, if they were truly hallucinating, that would be, that would be scary for them. Right. No, they're, it's very calm. Yes. It's very calm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so there's so much that we can do for our loved ones at the end of life, touch, keep talking to them, that sort of thing. Is it, oh gosh, I'm going to probably get choked up just even asking you this question. Gosh, I cannot imagine being with a family losing a child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what is that like? I know. And I will tell you, I'm a mom of four kids, Mm -hmm. adult kids now and a grandmother. I could not have done this work when my kids were little. So I understand. Okay, good. That makes are. me feel better. I understand yeah. completely. I couldn't even talk about it. And so I want, my heart is with you, Claire, during this conversation. Yeah. Okay. And hope all of you who are listening, never, you, and you also, Claire, never have to go through this. Okay. But, but there some are families. There are families that do go through this. Yeah. And I was giving um, a talk from South Carolina Chaplains Conference this past year, and I asked a chaplain on there, how do you answer a parent when they say, how could God let my child die? Right. And he said, my answer is God did not let your child die, but children die, and God is here with you and your child. Yeah. And I know that's not an easy answer. Um, 
You know, I, I also, and I will speak briefly, I was hired um, this past year, this past spring, to create and co-facilitate a grief support group for parents at MUSC who lost children uh-huh. and really help them on their journey. You don't know how you're going to handle it. You hope and pray. You never have to do this right. But if your child gets sick and you have to make medical decisions, and at some point the treatment becomes worse and, and you know, the side effects yeah. of it, yeah. that's when parents, and it takes a whole lot of courage to be able to say enough, enough, right? Right. There's a concept of a good parent and how someone sees themselves as a good parent. They will go to the end of the earth earth to provide everything for their child. Right. And then another parent sees himself as a good parent as they don't want their child to keep suffering against all odds. Right. So it's individual that the decisions that parents make. And unless it's a traumatic death, such as a car accident, this doesn't make it any easier, but parents have been on this journey sometimes for years. Yeah. From the time they're, you know, they had a baby with complications. Um, and it's one day at a time, one step at a time. But when I sit with parents um, and witness their pain, and they are in pain, and we begin to talk about decisions that they're making and how do they want their child's death to be, end of life. And many of them say, I don't want them to die in the hospital. Um, and they begin to think about it, but you, they almost have to compartmentalize it. They can't, because otherwise they're missing on the missing this special time that their child is still alive, right? Gosh, I just, I mean, it's what you're doing is so important. Um, and I, well, I just, you. I don't know how you do it. Thank you. Thank you. I, it is a calling for me. It truly is. Um, People ask me that, how can you do this? This has to be so depressing. And it, it, I find myself lifted and honored to be with these families. Now, do I have to take care of myself? Self-care is key, right? Yeah. Um, take breaks or do you, like, take, how do you do that? Take breaks. Well, of course, you know, go outside and look at the sky and breathe. And, you know, I was sitting with a mom one day, um, who had a, you know, has a little girl at home. She was about five at the time, had a baby the year before. Um, The baby died. It was another little girl. And then recently had another baby who had a cardiac defect, but was corrected while they were in the hospital. And they were getting ready to go home in a few days. And I was just sitting with her in the NICU and um, she was holding her baby And we were talking, and I said, because I knew she had lost a baby last year, and I said, how is your heart? How are you doing? And she looked at me, and the tears went down her face, and she said, no one's asked me that. She said, I'm sitting here holding my baby boy just in such gratitude and joy, and I'm also missing my daughter that I lost last year. So she was holding the pain and joy. And to be able to witness that and acknowledge that for her, Claire, 
that's what keeps me going because our pain, I just finished a three month um, grief course with David Kessler who trained with, with Elizabeth Kubler Ross. And he said, grief cannot heal without being witnessed. Wow. And I so believe that. Well, so I'm there to hold space, to witness, to help them on this journey. Journey. That's why my website is Gentle Heart Journeys. I was going to say, where can people find you? And if it's not you, is there a network of, of you? Like, sure, where can people find those resources? Absolutely. Well, my website is Gentle Heart Journeys. Um, I have another website, just in case you get confused, is bonniecompton.com. That is all my parenting work, my parent coaching work. Um, but it's Gentle Heart Journeys. I am in Charleston, South Carolina. However, I also offer virtual consults. Um, so it doesn't matter where you are. Um, as far as finding a doula, end-of-life doula in your area, you can go on, um, it's all cap, caps, N-E-D-A, um, dot, uh, N-E-D-A alliance.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you can Google end-of-life doulas. There are different directories. Um you know, end of life doulas have been around a lot longer than birth doulas have been. Well, I shouldn't say that, but the, the rise of birth doulas, that's a more recent thing. It's just, we're, it's, we're working really hard to get word out about it. Um, do you remember Barbara Carnes in the nursing field? She was big with hospice. Right. Um, she is amazing. And you know, she's saying every hospice needs to be hiring end of life doulas. I agree. Here's the thing about end-of-life doulas. We are not, we, you know, it's non-medical. I happen to have a medical background, nursing background, but mm-hmm. um, we're not trying to take over the hospice or palliative care. We are complementary and there to support. Right, right. And then they can do what they're there to do because you're doing the emotional right. work. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's a, so my hope, my dream, I'll be honest with you, Claire, is that there are end-of-life doulas in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. One day. That's my dream. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. So interesting. So, so needed. And guys, as always, if you liked this episode, please share it, rate it, um, tell your friends, and we'll see you next week.